if you follow the news closely, that one country that immediately comes into our mind, which is China, and previously. Over the episodes that we address this ongoing political and also social change within the country, but meanwhile, if you follow the news closely, that you know China is quietly making its move not to the countries in Europe, but to the countries in the Middle East. And for example, how should we understand the relationship between China and Palestine today? And given the fact the tension between Israel and Palestine at the border is getting more intense than ever among the international community members, everyone is trying to scramble for better solutions in order to avoid the major disaster. But also, if you follow the updates that recently the leader of Palestine visited China. And what message did that send to the world at the same time? And how about the country of Syria? And perhaps that you have known that this country is called a war-torn nation today. Is applying to become one of the close members, or we call the BRICS, that really close to China. And how is China going to respond to this? And in this episode, we are going to address all of them. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's my great honor to invite our distinguished speaker, who is Dr. Christian Elrikson. Again, Dr. Elrikson is the fellow for the Middle East at the Rice University's Baker Institute for Public Policy. His research spans on the history, political, and international political economy, and international relations of the Gulf states and their changing position within the global order. Dr. Al Rickson, and welcome back to the Missing Piece. Thanks for having me back. Well, again, Dr. Al Rickson, I want to get started. As we mentioned before, when we talk about globalization, China is unavoidable. It's one of the major players on the stage. But meanwhile, let's talk about the country of Syria. Based on the latest news, that Syria is applying to be a member. For the BRICS, and also as well as trying to be a member for the Shanghai Economic Cooperation. Now, help us with better understanding, Dr. Elrikson. How significant is the move if Syria were to be proved to join one of them, or perhaps the both powerful organizations? What we've seen over the past two or three months is that the international isolation that Syrian government has had since 2011, since the uprising. And the brutal crackdown by the Assad regime on those protesters, the Syrian government has been isolated, and in the last two or three months, that isolation has begun to ease. The Arab League, led by Saudi Arabia,、uh, readmitted, readmitted Syria in May. The Syrian leadership travelled to Saudi Arabia for the summit, and we saw there the first signs that the Assad. Regime is now being rehabilitated. Part of this is also because of the devastating earthquake which hit northeastern Syria and southern Turkey back in February. It made clear, I think, to a lot of people that、uh, many aid agencies had to engage with the Syrian government, whether they wanted to or not. The Gulf states, not all of them, but some of them, led by Saudi and the UAE,、uh, really pushed. To rehabilitate Assad, and so having done that on the regional stage through the Arab League, I think it's maybe the next step in that program of rehabilitation and reintegration into the world、uh, stage. That they're now going to go for something like the BRICS or for the Shanghai 
uh, framework as well. And uh, that would be the logical next step, especially given that Saudi Arabia, the UAE, and other Arab states are also drawing closer to, to the BRICS framework, uh, themselves perhaps looking for alternative pathways of global cooperation than the ones they've had until now. Mm. Professor, I want to read something to you and also help us to understand the lines uh, uh, behind uh, the, the paragraphs. Now, this is what the recent, again, the Syrian government, especially the, the presidential advisor, they comment on when we talk about the participation of the BRICS. And this is what it says, and I quote, the BRICS countries have been adopting a very honest and balanced position. And also, it's a just the force that seeks to bring peace, security, and cooperation among countries far from the West hegemony and injustice imposed on our peoples and nations for decades. Keep in mind, this is a statement that came out from the presidential advisor to the current Syrian government. So again, Professor Elrickson, how should we understand particularly the second part of the sentence is the BRICS countries are actually seeking to bring peace and security far from the Western hegemony and injustice imposed on peoples and nations for decades. Is this a strong statement really to, to fight against the political power or the political influence happening in the West today? What is the message behind this? Well, from the Syrian government perspective, I can see why they would be not wanting to work with the West. I think it's very clear that the Syrian regime is not going to be accepted back into the Western uh, framework anytime soon. Uh, the US and others have sanctions on the Syrian government and for good reason for this absolutely horrific record in, in, in government over the past 12 years. And so to see the Syrian government trying to compare and contrast what they see as the Western hegemony, as they put it, which I don't think is really accurate anyway, but they, they, they try and contrast that with obviously the very different approach by, by the BRICS. And it is different. I mean, the difference in approach is that perhaps the BRICS approach is focused more on economic cooperation and development and less perhaps on political conditionalities, which is more of a Western uh, Western approach to, to diplomacy. And so from a Syrian point of view, you can see why that, or at least from a Syrian government point of view, you can see why that might be attractive. It's also attractive to Saudi Arabia, to the UAE, to others, that countries in the BRICS engage on issues of mutual cooperation, mutual benefits, issues of trade, issues of economic uh, cooperation, without necessarily, as they see it, trying to lecture them on political reform, on human rights. Mm. So in that respect, you can see why they, they draw this distinction. Well, but again, Professor, isn't it ironic that, remember, keep in mind that Russia is also one of the critical players in the BRICS. But when we talk about the word peace, security, and also stability, cooperation, the war in Ukraine continues. So for Syria government to say that the members or this entire organization trying to promote peace and security and cooperation, that doesn't really sound right when we look at the war in Ukraine. So, so in other words, 
what is the message of that? Because when people are saying, hey, listen, if you believe the countries such as Brazil, you know, we'll look at China, we'll look at South Africa, of course, that, I mean, India, these countries are actually promoting the concept of democracy or democratic value. But Russia is not doing any of that. I mean, the war in Ukraine uh, brought trauma and pain and also suffering to the entire world. So how could a Syrian government be so confident to say that BRICS are actually promoting peace and security and also a justice? Well, what is that? Well, again, if you're looking at this from a Syrian government perspective, it was the Russian intervention in Syria in 2015 when uh, Putin sent in thousands of troops and uh, paramilitary supporters. That was what assisted the Syrian regime, the Assad regime, to reestablish control over areas they had lost control of to the opposition forces, including ISIS and uh, Al-Qaeda elements in Syria. And so from a Syrian government point of view, it was the Russian intervention in Syria in 2015, which was decisive in turning the tide in the uh, in the civil. So from that point of view, you can see why they talk about peace and security in the sense that they've been able to establish or re-establish Syrian government control over these territories and to the extent that some of the groups that lost out were groups like ISIS, that's probably not, I mean, it's probably the lesser of two evils for, for many people. Mm. And so you can see where they come from in that respect. But I mean, as you say, with, with Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine, because they also invaded in 2014, the full-scale invasion of Ukraine of the absolutely barbaric atrocities that the Russians are committing, not only shows you that Russia is not an actor interested in peace and security, it also shows that Russia is actually violating the very basis of the international rules-based order that uh, BRICS countries in other respects claim to be upholding in contrast to, as they might say, some of the Western attempts in the past to to go around that order. And you mentioned the Syrian statement before about this. And so it is a bit of a, it is quite a, quite a sense of double standards, but, but certainly from a Syrian perspective or a Syrian government perspective, you can see why they see Russia as having enabled or having facilitated stability, peace and security as they see it on in, in Syria itself. Mm. Professor, I want to move on to the next part of the conversation. Again, going back to BRICS, we know that Syria, it's only one of the countries that are actually applying to be additional member for BRICS. But there are actually more countries in the Middle East that are waiting in line to be admitted and hopefully to become the member or additional member for the BRICS. But from our perspective, Professor, how much does it matter, politically speaking and also economically speaking, when we talk about BRICS to the nations in the Middle East? Why are the BRICS are so attractive, particularly to the countries in the Middle East? Is it because the growth of China or is it because this, uh, the whole organization is generating much greater noises? beyond what we're looking at, this political influence or this political engagement. Professor, what do you say to that? I think it's partly the rise of China, the fact that China is now, for many states in the Middle East, their most important economic partner, not only for now, but probably for the rest of the century. I mean, they're looking long term and they see China's influence economically only getting stronger. And so, partly it's a reflection of that. 
I think it may also be a, a process of rebalancing international relationships to be less completely focused on the US and other states, which again, in the Middle East have a bit of a mixed record. And we have seen, obviously in the last few months, China engaging in uh, diplomacy between Saudi Arabia and Iran and having at least produced an outcome that has mm. seen the two countries reestablish diplomatic relations. And so certainly from a Arab point of view, where very few of these states are democratic states, they also are fairly authoritarian, like some of the BRICS countries, not all of them, but some of them. And I think they would much rather have dealings with uh, counterparts in the international system, which, uh, which do just focus on economic and uh, issues of mutual benefit and don't try to overlay those with conditions like the European Union would they try and strike a trade deal. The European Union insists on conditions about good governance and human rights. And of course, from a, an authoritarian standpoint in the Middle East, that's not something you always want to hear. You feel it distracts from the main economic and trade negotiation. So in that respect, it's, you can see why the BRICS would be attractive. I think there's a sense also that the balance of economic influence in the world is shifting and that the BRICS are these sort of middle and emerging powers that, in their view at least, will be the 21st century models of economic gravity. So I think that's why you now see this uh, sudden interest by many, many different countries to, um, to join. And I think what the war in Ukraine has done has really polarized uh, large parts of the world into the West and the West, in that sense. And a lot of countries look at the US and the sort of European response, like the sort of democracies versus autocracies uh, division that Joe Biden tries to make and uh, think, well, actually, if there is going to be a more polarized uh, international atmosphere, well, there are options. We don't automatically have to fall uh, in line with, with the US position. There are other options and BRICS is obviously one of those other options. But Professor, how much do you think that because of the growth or the impact of BRICS, that actually could hurt or can, um, we'll say, underestimate the presence of the West in terms of the Middle East policy? Because we know that the countries in the Middle East, you know, we're looking at Syria, we're looking at Turkey, look at other countries, they actually also matter to the West. But again, because of the growth, because the role of China and because this economic cooperation among the countries within this BRICS, that could really hurt the presence of the West. And But help us with better understanding. How much do you think at this moment the West should adjust the policy or at least the, some of the strategies when we're looking at some of the partnership or some of the possibilities with the countries in the Middle East? Well, it's certainly the case that for many states in the Middle East, in the Gulf states, for example, Israel as well. I mean, these are some of the closest U.S. partners in the region. In fact, they're absolutely the closest U.S. partners, and they have been for decades. And uh, and that means uh, long-standing security, defense relationships with the United States, with other Western states, especially some in Europe. Um, UAE, so Qatar, Kuwait, and Bahrain are non-NATO allies, for example, in the Gulf. You know, these are long relationships that go back decades, and mm -hmm. it remains the fact that 
the U.S. security guarantee is still there. It's still very important. Perhaps people in the Gulf are beginning to call into question when, after Donald Trump didn't do anything in 2019, when half of Saudi Arabia's oil production was taken out by missile and drone strikes linked, linked and never formally linked, but linked by many to Iran, and the Trump administration drew a distinction. So this was an attack on Saudi Arabia, it wasn't an attack on us. And that really shook the belief in the security guarantee that the Saudis thought they had from the US. But certainly, I think in the Gulf and in Israel, I don't think any policymaker thinks that China or any of the BRICS can possibly begin to replicate the full scale of the of security and defense ties that the US and others have built. So it's going to be more of a balancing act. Can you maintain, on the one hand, a security and defense relationship which is focused on the US, and on the other hand, still open up economically and politically and increasingly mm. some aspects of security and defense relationships to China at a time when the US and China are becoming more confrontational? And that balancing act and Russia as well. And that, that balancing act is what we've seen, I think, over the past 18 months, where the Saudis, the UAE, have made it very clear that they're not going to take sides. And you see Saudi Arabia and Russia working together in OPEC. You see mm. the UAE and China drawing much more close together in economic relationships, including potentially the Chinese uh, construction of a, of a naval facility in Abu Dhabi, which is, again, causing a lot of frustration in, in Washington. But what you're seeing is that the Gulf leaders are saying, well, this great power competition that you may have in Washington with, with China is none of our business. And so that's what has come out very strongly since the invasion of Ukraine and really probably is going to be a defining feature of the Middle East going forward. How do you, how do you balance those relationships, which are very strong in both directions, but which are having to take within the context of a much more polarized uh, confrontational system. Well, Professor, speaking of confrontational system, again, as we mentioned before, I want to bring another country into our conversation, which is Palestine. Again, based on the news that the recently the Palestinian leader actually paid a state visit to China. And again, the first so long that these two leaders sat down and prepared so much, and especially regarding the tension between Israel and Palestine at this moment. Now, during the exchange, this is something that came out from the Chinese side, and I want to get your reaction on this. This is what it says, and I quote, The fundamental solution to the Palestine issue lies in the establishment of an independent Palestinian state based on the 1967 borders with East Jerusalem as its capital. Now, again, this is the statement that came from the Chinese perspective. Professor, number one, why was the leader from Palestine interested in visiting China? And number two, by making such statement, what is the message does China try to send to the world, especially to this ongoing tension between Israel and Palestine at this moment? Well, from a Palestinian perspective, you can see why a visit to China would be very attractive. China is one of the five members of the United Nations Security Council. What the Chinese statement did was just reaffirm the basis of every UN resolution on Israel-Palestine since 1967, which is the... Mm. the Israel has to withdraw to its 1967 borders, 
and uh, there has to be a two-state solution. And this is the basis, the generally accepted basis for the resolution of the dispute. And this is the UN position. Now, states within the UN, including the US, have on many occasions either opposed or abstained from Security Council votes. But mm. China is one of the five permanent members and is restating UN positions on this. And so for China to restate this, I think is pretty symbolic and pretty clear, especially given developments in Israel over the last few years, and also developments in US policy, which increasingly, they don't declare it, but increasingly always seem to see the two-state solution as valid. So I think for the Chinese to restate it is, shows that one of the main, well, one of the major parties of the UN still believes in this uh, in this commitment in this process and it's a reminder that other states shouldn't uh, shouldn't uh, pretend it doesn't exist mm. so i think it's symbolic it's also potentially important it could be that the palestinians are hoping to draw the chinese in to taking more of a greater direct role in diplomacy as they have done with saudi arabia and iran i i think we're probably still a bit of a way off from that just because with Saudi Arabia and Iran, both the Saudis and the Iranians, for different reasons, wanted to come to an agreement. And China was able to help them get over the line. I think with Israel and Palestine, there's still so much uh, baggage and so much difference in positions that it's much more difficult to imagine anyone coming to an agreement. Although, again, you go back to the sort of Western and U.S. position. I mean, the U.S. has failed to that gap over decades, partly because the U.S. has seen as having taken sides in favor of Israel, just as in the same way that the U.S. could not have brokered the Saudi-Iran deal, which China did, again, because the U.S. has taken sides over the last 40 years, in this case, in favor of Saudi Arabia. It doesn't even have a diplomatic relationship with the other side, in this case, Iran. So it could be the Chinese have greater leverage on both sides because they have those relationships to to bring Israel and Palestine closer together. And that could be something the Palestinians may have been hoping for or raising during their meetings in China. Mm. Now, when it comes to the Palestinian side, again, the government that, number one, during the state visit, expressed the desire for support of the One China policy, which related to the region of Taiwan. Again, we know that this is such a very sensitive topic, internationally speaking, because we know that this is also one of the critical issues that actually drive the wedges between the U.S. and China at this moment. But during the state visit, uh, during the state visit, the Palestinian government pledged to actively participate and also honor the One China policy and also China's Belt and Road Initiative for the global infrastructure and also thank China for the political support. Now, Professor Ulrichson, is this a win for China when it comes to this political support, especially regarding the region of Taiwan and also this Belt and Road Initiative expansion? What do you say to that? Well, we have certainly seen over the past years that the Chinese have been using their political and economic leverage and the prospect of continuing economic cooperation to, to put pressure on states to take a position on the one China policy. And in Taiwan, we've certainly seen a number of other states in other parts of the world deciding to cut, cut links with Taiwan, mm. cut relations with Taiwan. 
And I mean, from the Palestinian perspective, it may be that they have decided that getting China's support for for their own political ambitions in Palestine is 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 more important to them than than Taiwan, because it may be that Palestinians in Taiwan don't have a an economic or political relationship. I don't know, but it could be that this is something that has seen seem to be more important to have the Chinese political, diplomatic, and potentially investment and economic support through Belt and Road is more important. Mm. So in that respect, it's a win for, for the Chinese, perhaps. It's a win for the Palestinians if they if that support is forthcoming. Uh, it's also perhaps, uh, again, a sense of double standards in the sense that uh, Palestinians of all people should know what it's like to be a small state threatened mm. by a much larger, conventionally much more powerful armed neighbor. And so in that respect, you can see the uh, perhaps a discrepancy in the position. But, um, but certainly, I think the Palestinians, if they've made this decision, would have come to it very, very pragmatic, calculated discussion of what's best for Palestinian interests, not what, not, not what is best for Taiwan. And for the calculation of Palestinian interests, I may have come to a view that it is more important to have full su- full support of China for Palestine within the Security Council, the United Nations, in putting whatever pressure they can on Israeli government to make concessions. I think that's probably how they, they made that decision. Professor Erickson, I want to wrap up our conversation by asking you the last question is, ultimately, we know that China continue expands its influence, politically speaking, and also on this economic agenda in the Middle East. But meanwhile, China is also compa- uh, competing with the West when we talk about, again, we talk about political influence and also economic ambitions. Now, Professor, from your perspective... As we continue to see China's hunger in this economic agenda, in this social agenda, what is the goal or what is the angle for China to continue to build presence in the Middle East? Number one, we understand energy could be more important. Resources could be the secondary. But most importantly is we want more countries to join this Belt and Road Initiative. But is there anything that we have now talked about when we talk about China's presence in the Middle East? And especially that right now, when we look at this foreign policy side from the West, it seemed uh, it's hit some brick walls one after another. So what do you say to that? Yeah, I definitely think so. China already has a very strong presence in the Middle East. It has an economic presence. A lot of the Middle Eastern states are already involved quite heavily in Belt and Road initiatives. And so I think the investment angle is going to continue. We just had a major China-Arab investment summit. We had uh, President Xi visiting Saudi Arabia last Mm. December. A very stark contrast between the massive fanfare with which President Xi was received and the very, very low-key visit of Joe Biden to Saudi Arabia six months before. So it was a very clear contrast. So I think, well, what's what's next? I mean, the economic and energy relationships are continuing to grow, and I think that's not going to get any less. That's just going to continue to increase over time. I mean, if the Chinese can demonstrate follow-through on the Saudi-Iran restoration of ties, and so far that's gone pretty well, we just saw the Saudi foreign minister in Iran at the weekend, the uh, first visit for, for many years. They've invited the Iranian president to visit Saudi Arabia, which again will be the first, I think, for at least 20 years. And so if they can demonstrate that there's real outcomes, not just 
speculations, but actually outcomes. And I think there will be a push to involve China in other parts of the Middle East, where up until now, perhaps a US-led or Western-led approach to trying to resolve issues hasn't worked. And again, partly because there's at least a perception in the Middle East that the US or the West has taken sides, and that hasn't helped. In fact, it may argue, one can may argue, it has actually exacerbated some of the divisions just because countries in the region have acted on the assumption that they have US support. The Saudis did so when they went into Yemen, for example, in 2015. Israel does so with, with the Palestinians, feeling that they have US protection at the UN Security Council. And so if China can demonstrate outcomes as well as declarations, can actually show that they are following through and providing results, producing results that make the Middle East a more sustainable, diplomatic, balanced place, then we could see, again, more demands to bring China further into the political and diplomatic uh, arrangements, which until now, I think it probably hasn't been. It's been more economic focused, but it could be more drawn into political and sort of diplomatic relations too. But then that does bring the risk that China will at one point maybe have to start taking sides too if, if something happens. And so I think it will be very carefully considered uh, as to the benefits and the costs of any potential political uh, engagement in the Middle East that could lend to draw China in deeper into sort of regional struggles, which again, I think would be something they wouldn't want to happen. That's right, Professor. I agree with you 100%. Again, so that's why we're saying since the political atmosphere is standing at the crossroads today in the U.S., but it's one thing that we need to take care of the domestic policy, but also in terms of the foreign policy, particularly from the West to the Middle East and also to China, to the countries in Southeast Asia, actually matter more today than ever. Well, again, ladies and gentlemen, it's my great honor to speak to Dr. Christian Elrickson. Again, Dr. Elrickson is the fellow for the Middle East and at Rice University Baker Institute for Public Policy. His research spans on the history, political and international political economy and the international relations of the Gulf states and other changing position within the global order. Well, Professor Elrickson, thank you so much again for taking your time to be on the show. It's always been a pleasure. We hope you have this lovely summer. We know it's going to be very busy, but meanwhile, the travel is going to be fun. And we'd love to hear from you when you get back to the States and love to have you back on the show as we continue to pay attention to those policies, not only in the Middle East, but also around the world. So thank you so much for doing this.